I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. As societies around the world continue to grapple with various forms of inequity, breast cancer treatment is no different. And while academic pursuits often expand medical understanding, the practical application of knowledge is crucial for patients in real-life circumstances. But what would equity look like in this space? How can the gap between high and low resource areas be bridged? And how can valuable medical knowledge be more universally and consistently applied? Dr. Dio Fidelu is a medical oncologist and instructor in medicine at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. His work includes, among other efforts, examining tools for patients to self-monitor symptoms in order to improve adherence to endocrine therapies among patients in Rwanda and Haiti. Dr. Fidelu recently received the Career Development Award for Diversity, Inclusion, and Breast Cancer Disparities. His project aims to test text messaging and symptom self-monitoring to improve that adherence to endocrine therapies among patients in Rwanda. Dr. Fidelu was a prior recipient of a previous Conquer Cancer BCRF Young Investigator Award. Before my conversation with Dr. Fidelu, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Dio Fidelu. Dr. Fidelu, thank you for joining. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So this is not scientific, but I often feel that if you want to know what a person really cares about, you'll look at their Twitter bio. Um, and on your Twitter bio, you list all the important elements, oncologist, hospital and university affiliations, the fact that you're an impromptu cook, which I think will make for an excellent follow-up podcast conversation with you, um, but also the words in your bio, cancer equity. What does cancer equity mean to you? Uh, thanks for that question. Um, um, I did not expect people would um, refer to my Twitter bio, but um, so I think to me, cancer equity is um, uh, patients um, from anywhere in the world having access to the appropriate type of um, uh, cancer care that that patient needs. Um, so uh, there is a lot in that, um, in the sense that um, um, each the, the type of care a patient need, needs is sort of customized to their own specific needs. Mm. Um, and um, when I say access, access is a relatively complicated word because access can mean, you know, geographical access, um, economic access, um, and um, uh, a variety of other elements of access as well. Um, so to me, it's, um, you know, folks really having the care that they need um, in a way that is accessible to them. Yeah. And obviously that's where you have um, dedicated so much of your energy and efforts uh, over the years. And um, I look forward to asking you about some of the specific uh, current efforts that you have um, to kind of close that gap. Um, but but you, the research of yours that focuses on the disconnect between evidence-based knowledge and integration into real-world clinical practice. Um, describe that disconnect for me, because I think that, that 
understanding it, for us to understand that disconnect gets to the heart of so much of what you do. Yeah, so um, in the academic world and in the research world, um, there are lots of studies that get done, um, and studies are usually done in um, an idealized setting. Um, so be it testing of a new medication or investigating the reasons for why um, something is a particular way. Um, and a lot of knowledge gets generated um, mm. Uh, and the question is what happens after that knowledge gets generated in the context of a, of a research study. Um, so one element of the disconnect when it comes to uh, lower resource settings, um, for example, settings like Rwanda and in Haiti where I work, um, uh, is that many of the studies that generate the knowledge are not done in those settings. Those studies might be done in higher research settings and there's also there's always a question of how translatable um, the findings are from the higher research settings to the lower research settings. Um, another element of this as well is even studies that are done in lower research settings are usually uh, done in a way that requires a lot of support to carry on the study. And after the study ends, many times there is a gap between translating what is found in that setting um, to actually impacting patients locally as well. Um, so um, as a, an emerging field called implementation science, um, and the goal of implementation science um, is to try to bridge that gap. Um, so not just finding out whether or not something is efficacious or generating knowledge, but figuring out the most appropriate way of implementing the findings from the knowledge that is generated to um, impacting people in a local way. Um, so as you can imagine, um, implementation science really needs to take into account the context in which you're working because um, it's um, the context is really important. So even if you find something somewhere, really recognizing the context in which you want to implement it um, is quite important. One size does not fit all. Correct. One size definitely does not fit all. Um, and um, a lot of my work currently has been in um, utilizing some implementation science principles to improve uh, the type of care patients are getting, uh, specifically breast cancer patients um, in Rwanda and Haiti. Is the challenge in the first instance to simply understand the facts on the ground? It's hard to even get a lay of the land because there's not even enough primary or adequate primary research going on in those locations. Am I understanding that part of the problem correctly? Yes, that is that is most certainly a huge part of um, uh, the problem in uh, many uh, low-income countries. Um, uh, traditionally, many of these countries had focused their healthcare systems on other types of diseases, um, specifically communicable diseases and infectious diseases. Um, so uh, there traditionally has not been a uh, uh, a strong background of um, uh, primary data and primary research in oncology in these settings. So um, some of the initial work um, that we've done in Rwanda has really been, let's just get the lay of the land of mm. what's the current state and what's the current status of things. Um, and understanding that um, helps you also understand gaps. Um, and then you can um, employ strategies that have been used in other places, but in a way that is contextually appropriate to fill those gaps. What struck me as well was some of your data around breast cancer 
does not discriminate, I assume, between high-income, middle-income, and low-income countries in the initial instance, correct? I can assume in kind of an even distribution, regardless of economic status of the country itself? Um, it is a little bit more complicated than that, but um, you, can, it, you are absolutely right that breast cancer does not discriminate. Um, and um, in the past, uh, uh, there was the thought that um, uh, low-income countries would not suffer from oncologic problems, uh, but that's certainly not the case. So uh, there is uh, breast cancer occurs everywhere around the world. However, there are some um, uh, social and um, other factors that increase the risk of having breast cancer in some places. But you're, you're right that breast cancer occurs around the world. If I'm understanding correctly, the most heart-wrenching problem is that early recognition really matters. Once it's recognized early, mm-hmm. um, continual regularized treatment really matters. Mm-hmm. And that's where the data showed just the cliff drop, that while the, maybe the initial instances are basically averaging out about equal-ish across the globe, a real disparity in how many of those cases result in a patient's death, I guess, in a sense, dependent on where they live. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Um, And there is a, this is, there's certainly huge disparities in this. So if you lived in, you know, the U S or in Northern Europe, um, first your breast cancer will be diagnosed at an earlier stage. Um, and when you actually look stage for stage, um, uh, you certainly will have much higher survival rate. Um, so a patient having uh, breast cancer in the U.S. or Northern Europe has an over 80 to 90% chance of, um, of survival um, over, um, over five years, depending mm-hmm. on what the stage is. However, um, if you a, a breast cancer patient in a low resource setting in somewhere in uh, sub-Saharan Africa might only have a 50 to 60% chance of survival. Um, and um, uh, there, there's a lot that comes in there. Um, so part of it is the stage of diagnosis. Part of it is really the inaccessibility of um, curative treatment. Um, so even patients with curative disease um, um, you know, are still doing poorly. Um, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So this segues, I believe, to some of your current research. Um, And and that's your effort in improving adherence to uh, adjuvant endocrine therapy among patients with breast cancer in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Um, Randomized intervention of um, symptom self-monitoring and motivational mobile text message reminders. Um, so d- describe that effort for me. W- what is your strategy? When did you start? W- where are you in the process? Um, how, how will it work? Okay, thank you for that question. Uh, so this is a, a, re- a study that was recently funded um, uh, by the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, as well as um, uh, ASCO Conquer Cancer Foundation. So mm-hmm. we're just in the early stages so the overarching concept here, um, as I mentioned, is um, uh, trying to improve the, the care that patients get. In this particular case, these are patients who have estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Um, and in this particular population, 
um, adjuvant endocrine therapy. That's endocrine therapy that patients get after they've had surgery and, and folks who need chemotherapy after they've gotten chemotherapy. Um, this is um, uh, oral medications that patients will take for at least five years. Um, and adjuvant endocrine therapy is almost as important or just as important um, as chemotherapy in this population. Mm. Um, these are medications that are old and have been available for a long time. Um, and those are medications that you take by mouth. Um, so, you know, in a setting like Rwanda and in other low resource settings, uh, these are therapies that are already available. So the main question is how do you improve um, uh, patients' um, adherence to these medications? Um, so that really has not been much in the literature um, really assessing how well patients are doing um, with adherence to these medications. So if I can just clarify, make sure I'm understanding your point there, we can get the medication there. It's not mm-hmm. a question of whether the medication exists or if it can get kind of physically to the country. Mm-hmm. It's at that point that there's the gap in the understanding. And I think, uh, and then I think your conclusion is um, challenges in terms of maintaining the treatment. Is that right? Correct. So challenges, so the concept of adherence um, sort of goes, the, the multiple elements of adherence, one is starting the treatment. Mm. Um, the other part is actually taking the treatment the way it's prescribed, so taking it on a daily basis in this case. And then the other challenge is taking it for the duration for which it's prescribed, so taking it for, in this case, at least five years. Um, so there are uh, challenges at each of these steps. Um, so right now, we actually don't know what the magnitude of the problem is. Um, um, from some of our studies, we've been able to, um, we, we understand the problem a little bit, but we actually did not know it completely. Um, so we know that um, uh, only about 85% of, patient, of eligible patients initiate the treatment. Um, and we also know that um, um, uh, about uh, 40% of patients, for whatever reason, um, end up being lost to follow up within the first two years. Um, so part of this study, the first part of the study is really trying to understand the different elements of adherence within this population. Um, so it, it, the first part is a mixed method study, which involves interviewing patients, mm-hmm. but also um, we'll, um, there will be a survey of patients um, sort of understanding what are the things that contribute to why, whether or not patients are adherent. And what's your hypothesis going in and based on the work that you've done over so many years? Is it not enough facilities within the facilities? There's, is there more of a focus on the initial diagnosis and yeah. the, the surgical treatment, but maybe not as much focus on the continuing care? Yeah. Are, do people live too far away? Yeah. Is it something cultural? Is it all, you know, A, B, C, D, are you going to choose E, all of the above? What, what's, what's the answer here, doctor? It's, it's probably a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so that's the main reason we're doing this first part of the study because many times um, people jump into the intervention without necessarily really understanding the problem. Um, sure. And in this case, it's really important to try to assess what the problem is, even if we know that patients are not, um, you know, quote unquote, adherent, 
what are the reasons why they're not adhering? Because What's that, the root cause? Exactly. That would really impact what you do. Um, so certainly um, based on some of the previous studies that we've done, um, there are some things that we certainly know are problems. <laughs> um, so um, patients have to travel from far away um, to get the medication. Um, uh, there are certainly side effects from the medication. Um, so um, uh, how much um, are those side effects impacting what patients do? Um, how much does um, you know education of patients on those side effects um, um, actually impact what they do with regards to t- letting, allowing them know and empowering them to know the importance of the medication and the purposes of the medication and how does that impact what they do? Um, and, um, you know, empowering patients to also manage those symptoms um, so that, um, um, or simply asking them about those symptoms so that they, they let the clinician know um, what's, um, what's going on. Um, and in the case of Rwanda, these medications are available to patients at no cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the cost of the medication itself um, should not be a problem. Um, nonetheless, um, there are a variety of other costs that come into play uh, for patients, um, specifically travel costs. Um, and um, that's one of the things we showed in a previous study that um, tra- travel costs can be quite significant. Um, yeah. So, yeah. The, so, the- so much of your research um, in your studies, it has seemed to me uh, focus not just on the medical science, but also the costs around it. I, I don't know, you know, to what extent do you feel that you're, you know, a part-time oncologist, but a full-time economist? Uh, I, 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 de- I most certainly would not call myself an economist. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but the cost component is, uh, it's not just a science problem. It's not correct. just a medical science problem that you're dealing with. I know you've also recently published research looking at breast cancer outcomes in Haiti, and you did this with, you know, among others, Dr. Lawrence Shulman, an incredibly inspiring doctor who also was a previous guest on this podcast. Did your findings in that research, particularly recognizing that most Haitian patients are diagnosed at later stages, um, did that research inspire the Rwanda efforts or do I have the timeline wrong and you already were in Rwanda? So I started working in Rwanda first, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, after I completed my internal medicine residency in 2013, I, w- I moved to Rwanda and I was working at um, uh, the cancer program at Butaro Cancer Center of Excellence. And uh, I lived and worked there for two years and then moved back to the U.S. Um, and was doing my time back. Oh, I've been living in the U.S. since then. And I started working in Haiti in 2016. Um, so I've kept long time collaborate, collaborations with both countries. So I've continued working in Rwanda, but also um, work in Haiti. Um, and, uh, so the work, both, the work in both countries have inspired one another. Mm. Um, even though the countries are quite different, um, there are some themes, um, that cut across, um, uh, the, 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 the different places. Um, uh, so patients have limited resources in both places. Um, the healthcare system is different, um, in the sense that, um, uh, uh, Rwanda has a national insurance scheme, um, which, um, does have an Im- influence in what type of access patients might have. Um, and that, um, is not the case in Haiti. 
um, and um, uh, both uh, the geographic nature and the location of the uh, facilities um, also sort of has an impact of you know patients' accessibility to those places as well. Going back then to your study in Rwanda, you know there's a problem, but you're trying to diagnose, you need to diagnose the root causes of, mm-hmm. of the problem. But my understanding is that some of the tactics, and I imagine you're not going to implement tactics until you understand the root causes, mm-hmm. but some of the tactics that you are thinking about include the motivational mobile text message reminders and other capabilities for self-monitoring. Mm-hmm. Do I have that right? And are these tactics, have you used these elsewhere? What's making you think that these are the type of tactics that might make sense? Yeah. yeah so um, the choice of those as um, uh, those two as, you know, part of a potential slew of interventions um, was based on review of the literature um, specifically um, review of the HIV and TB literature in Sub-Saharan Africa, because um, the uh, med- HIV medications and TB medications are also all medication. Mm. And there's actually been a variety of studies that have been done in the Sub-Saharan African context. So even though it's not necessarily related to cancer, uh, there's certainly some literature from there, um, as well as um, um, looking at the um, broader literature on um, adherence to um, adjuvant endocrine therapy. Um, so based on the, on those and also based on some uh, studies uh, and evaluation we did specifically in Rwanda. So we did a survey um, asking patients about their use of technology, um, specifically uh, uh, what type of technology they had access to, um, how were they using um, mobile phones if they had access to mobile phones, as well as what the patient's preferences are um, uh, with either text messaging or calls or other types of functionalities with the phones. Um, And we're also currently finishing up a prior study, uh, which is a a pilot study um, uh, where we're um, piloting text messaging um, in a few number of patients. um, And we will do some qualitative interviews with those patients at the end. Um, So those are the things that influenced our decision for um, suggesting that these might be interventions that might potentially work. Um, uh, There have also been some, I should also mention, there have also been some studies that um, indicate that text messaging alone um, uh, has not been as effective um, Mm. in Western populations, specifically in the U.S. So, um, our goal was not necessarily to replicate exactly what was done in the U.S. Um, and given some indication that text messaging alone wasn't going to be effective, we wanted um, a multifaceted intervention. Um, so um, uh, the, t- the content of the text messaging, in this case, motivational messages, um, and also um, empowerment of the patients. Um, uh, in this case, we want them to record their symptoms, but also they'll get suggestions on how to um, manage those symptoms um, and doing those remotely um, as a way of bridging the patients in between appointments um, so that they could um, um, take their medications. Certainly, if um, part of this project after the completion of um, the survey um, is, um, you know, really asking patients what intervention, not just patients, but also 
um, uh, there's a there's a process called implementation mapping where you get um, uh, experts, local experts, so local clinicians, patient advocates, patients, um, content expert in breast cancer. Get the whole it, ecosystem, it sounds get, like. Get it, get it, everyone on the table saying, here's a slew of interventions we're talking with, thinking about implementing. Let's sort of work together to figure out if those interventions actually make sense and, you know, selecting um, a package that makes sense and then figuring out exactly how to implement them. Um, so uh, there are going to be multiple steps prior to getting to the to the randomization. Um, so the, the project is a three-year project and we're really at the beginning. So the randomization comes later on. So as you are kind of launching into this journey on this research, what is the role for you of BCRF? Mm-hmm. And what would you ask of the rest of us, what should the rest of us think about, or even, uh, God forbid, do uh, that that you would ask? Well, the the, the second question is the harder question. <laughs> um, so uh, let's talk about the first one. Um, so BCRF um, uh, is supporting this work um, through um, the work that they do with the cancer, the, the Conquer Cancer Foundation. Um, and, um, you know, BCRF also supported, um, a young investigator award, um, that I, uh, I got, which helped create some of the preliminary data and that, that it feeds into this work. Um, so, and BCRF is also supporting some other work, um, in cancer screening, um, um, and, uh, early detection, um, in, in Rwanda as well. Um, so I'll say, you know, BCRF has really been quite instrumental, um, in, in helping to, you know, really understand some of these contextual factors, um, and hopefully, um, in the, you know, implementing and testing of a variety of interventions as we go forward. Um, and, you know, specifically for me, I think, um, uh, not BCRF, a lot, these grants are fundamental grants are really early career development grants for me. And, um, uh, they've helped with, um, uh, creating, helping me generate this data that can then be used for much more substantial, larger grants in the future from BCRF and from other foundations as well. And also, um, uh, you know, national funding from, uh, from the National Cancer Institute. Um, what can, what can other folks do? Um, um, I think, uh, you know, there is, um, uh, I'll say, you know, everyone can try to learn about what's going on out there. So I think first, you know, each person, um, thinking for themselves, what, are, what do they want to learn about and what, in what way do they think they can contribute? Um, so, you know, some of the work that I'm doing currently, um, uh, as you sort of indicated, does not necessarily require a medical degree. Um, <laughs> Good, and, uh, then I'm qualified. <laughs> yes, you are, you are in fact qualified because we are, you know, part of the interventions, part, potential interventions might be patient education materials. Um, so, you know, um, creating the patient, the content of the patient education materials would require some knowledge, but, you know, formatting the patient education materials, putting it in a way that is in fact accessible to patients, I mean, something that is beyond what I can do. So, you know, needing collaborators to do that. Um, 
many of the patient education materials are in paper. Um, um, and we, in fact, know um, uh, there is a low literacy level um, amongst our patients. So we try to have, you know, pictorial um, representations. Um, but one of the visions I have um, in the future is having patient education materials in an audio version or video version um, in a way that is, in fact, much more accessible to the patients um, yes. um, where they can you know, have access to it remotely. Um, we found out that you know, the vast majority of our patients have phones. Um, vast majority have um, smartphones. Um, and so there are ways of you know, um, uh, doing things um, uh, in a way that is more accessible to patients, um, uh, which certainly requires a, a variety of expertise beyond what I have. Um, so I do work with collaborators with them. Um, you know, uh, patient advocacy groups, um, um, and, um, specifically cancer survivors as well. Um, mm. um, and one of, um, uh, you know, another project, um, that, uh, we're currently working on is understanding, uh, breast cancer stigma and how to work with, um, uh, family members and understanding the type of stigma patients undergo with their family members. Specifically um, in Rwanda or in multiple locations? Specifically in Rwanda. Um, and, um, uh, you know, as a part of that project, you know, we are going to be trying to develop interventions as well. Um, and some of the potential interventions is utilizing uh, breast cancer survivors as, you know, partners with patients, but doing it in a way that is proactive, um, such that patients and their families have access to um, uh, a variety of resources that can potentially help them. Um, so well, that would seem to be incredibly powerful, not only the one-on-one capability of, yes, to whatever extent there is stigma, be, to be able to talk to someone who has gone through it and survived, mm-hmm. but also potentially, you know, if you are distributing audio or video materials to, you know, mobile phones as a way, you know, for future encouragement, uh, boy, I, those survivors would make uh, remarkable spokespeople, wouldn't they? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So um, those are potential ways in the future that I think people can um, uh, can help. There are so many challenges that many of us don't even know in the first instance that they exist. To close out the conversation, let's talk about maybe the one thing that I'm just guessing, judging by your personality, you you would hate to have to talk about. Let's talk about you. Um, how did, how did you get into this? And I mean, going way back, I I know that you did not grow up here in the U S but for you, was it always science? I did read that your medical school thesis evaluated brain drain and migration patterns of physicians from sub-Saharan Africa to higher income uh, countries. Uh, I, I can only assume that that was your autobiography that that you you wrote, and uh, I'm glad to know, of course, that you are going back and spending time, uh, you know, back in Africa as well. But t- tell me, um, you know, where, how how was it for you growing up, and was it always science? Was it always research? Yeah, well, um, so I, I I'm originally Nigerian. Um, I grew up in Nigeria, and. Um, I moved to the U.S. Um, uh, for college, so I was in Nigeria up, up until high school, and um, it is it is sort of a complicated complicated question. Um, so let's put it this way: so I was always interested in science and math. Um, um, so going back to elementary school, I um, 
uh, it was always, you know, sort of interested in, uh, I guess I just enjoyed math. Um, I don't know why I didn't become a mathematician, but I enjoyed science and math. Actually, I do remember why I did not become a mathematician. Um, calculus in college was hard. Um, so that, yes, that changed, yes. of course. That derailed many of us, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, in Nigeria, in high school, you also um, decide on a, on a, on a general path. Um, so mm-hmm. you have to sort of decide if you're on a science path or an arts path or a business path. Um, so I'd sort of gotten into the science path um, based on my interest in elementary school. And um, um, at, the fin- at the end of high school, you take exams that are specific to the path you were on. Um, so in a way, my, my, my career in science was sort of defined from high school. And um, um, I had also started um, university in Nigeria before I moved to the U.S. And, and in Nigeria, medical school is an undergraduate degree. Um, so I was in medical school at um, University of Lagos. Um, so when I came to the U.S. Um, a year um, after uh, high school graduation, um, I, I sort of was anchored on the idea of medicine because I was already in medical school. Um, so I did struggle a little bit deciding on what majors to do in college. Um, um, another thing I enjoyed at the time was um, environmental studies. Mm. Because uh, I, I had asthma growing up as a kid, and um, uh, I was sort of interested in the idea of like pollution and um, how pollution impacts um, breathing and um, waste management and things of that nature. So, um, long story in college, I was a biology and environmental studies major wow. as well as pre med, um, and uh, decided on the on the medical school route. Um, I mean, part of it was based on my experiences growing up. So my experiences um, with, um, you know, asthma and illness. And uh, part of it was also based on my family's experience because my dad passed away um, at the end of high school. And um, he had um, uh, hepatitis um, as well as hepatocellular carcinoma. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, at the time, I did not recognize um, um, that he had cancer. Um, and it's something I later discovered, um, uh, you know, after having some, a little bit more knowledge. Um, and, you know, so I think that certainly had an impact on my wanting to do something within medicine. Um, I should also mention that my mom also had breast cancer um, uh, when I was uh, living in, in Rwanda. Thankfully, she is doing okay. Um, and um, so, you know, the experience of cancer is a personal one to to me and my family. And, um, um, uh, you know, the narrative of cancer not being a problem in, in, in many low research settings, to me, seemed clearly wrong. <laughs> um, so that, that motivated my, the work that I did in, in, um, in medical school, as well as, you know, going on to um, internal medicine and, um, and oncology. Well, certainly that would, be clearly very, very powerful motivation. And uh, I guess our, our hope then is uh, once you solve this cancer thing, then you can return to environmental science and solve the climate change thing. You, you, could, you could deal with both of them for us, couldn't you? Unfortunately, the, the environmental ship has sailed. <laughs> okay. Okay. Then we'll only hold you to, to solving cancer. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, we we jointly as a world hopefully can can make can make a dent in cancer. 
Certainly. Well, um, through efforts like yours and the other folks who are fortunate enough to get to speak with, every effort is obviously being made. Dr. Fidelu, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you do every day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for this opportunity to share with all of your listeners. That was my conversation with Dr. Dio Fidelu. My thanks to Dr. Fidelu for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts. 